Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. And that's the first time I've been able to say that for, I don't know, what seems like ages. Because um, Emma, you've been holding the fort, not even holding the fort. I'd say sort of smashing the fort out of the park, although destroying the fort in this analogy is not useful. But yeah, I'm back and Emma's here. So hello, Emma, and thank you. Hello, James. It's nice to have you back. Yeah, it's interesting coming back onto the podcast and trying to find the words because I am stumbling and quite tired. Um, yeah, I've been away, not actually having babies, but um, being around while somebody else, my partner, Liz, um, had our first baby, a daughter. So please excuse me if I'm struggling to sort of spin a sentence because no one tells you this. Why does no one tell you? Babies make you incredibly tired. I mean, obviously, yes, they do tell you. And it's the biggest cliche in the book, but they're really good, but they do make you very, very tired. But you're back and that's what matters. That's what we're here for. Exactly. We're here to talk about cycling, but also I'm here to talk about you, Emma, what you've been doing. Let's have a bit of that. Let's have a bit of, bit of the chat because I've also just only had um, a five-week-old human to look at. Who, and she's not much of a conversationalist. So if, not very chatty. No, not very chatty. <laughs> a bit um, a bit moany, if I'm honest. Um, not that chatty. So yeah, go on. Give me some human interaction, some adult adult chit-chat. Well, I had a bike fit this morning, which was pretty fun. That was my first ever bike fit. Um, learned a lot. Actually learned that my setup wasn't that bad. Really? Which is always nice. Yeah. Okay. I mean, minimal, mostly the fact that I was overreaching, which I probably could have told you. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, also, I don't know if you ever get really numb palms, but that's one thing I really struggle yeah. with, especially on like a long ride. Um, and I get it so much that my um, I can't hold anything. That's quite bad. <laughs> yeah, quite bad. So it's been like, I don't know, maybe on the fifth day. And then I'm, so I'm trying to hold something. All of a sudden, my grip is not like, it's fine on the bike, but come off and I try and hold a water bottle. I can't feel the bottom, like a bit of my palm. That's, I mean, yeah, that that's kind of not, did you talk to the bike fitter about that? Yeah, no, definitely had a good chat about it. And I think, yeah, I think he's, hopefully it'll really help. But it's one of those things that you only find out once it's happening yeah. like once you're like a couple of days in so yeah fingers crossed but it was great it's one of those things isn't it where you kind of it's i don't know it's like going to the doctor or something i feel like you want to be told that you're absolutely fine but at the same time you quite like to know that something's really diabolically wrong but they can fix it for you and in fixing it everything's going to be so much better than it ever was before so it's like do you want to be told your position's incorrect probably not but then if they could go, yeah, you're wildly off and we're going to like raise the front end by five mil and that's going to make you 20 watts faster, then you take it every day of the week. That is true. One thing he did change was my got insoles oh, yes. in my shoes. Mm-hmm. That was pretty fun. And actually, I had a nice surprise about my feet. He said they were quite normal and nice. What elements of your feet did you feel were going to be normal or nice? I just always thought I had weird feet. I don't know why. I think it's like some weird complex. But he was like, no, I, you know when you're like, I think I've got really wide feet. Yeah. Like my feet are weird. Um, and he was like, no, they're actually, you're very average with your feet. Like they're very normal. Um, so that was again a nice surprise. Wonderful thing to hear. Yeah, it was actually a highlight of my week probably. Normal feet. I've apparently got very weird feet um, because my whatever the toe is next to your big toe and the one next to that are both longer than my big toe. Oh, freaky. That's weird. That is not quite... That, <laughs> that is, is a, that was really quite a rude reaction, ultimately. I thought you, you could have just gone, oh, that's interesting. But no, straight <laughs> up with the freaky. That's, yes. 
The reason I say that is because quite a few of my friends have got web toes. Okay. And I think that's so I'm quite normalized with web toes. But I think longer toes than your big toe. What's that sign of? I feel like someone somewhere is going to say that's a sign of something pretty strange. Um, it's either a ballet dancer or an Egyptian king. Ah, Egyptian king, yeah. surely. I would, yeah, I'd imagine so. <laughs> Definitely Tutankhamun vibes coming from my feet. Um, well, one last question I'd like to ask you, actually, and just straw polling people about this because we're talking about feet. And then we'll actually talk about cycling. And we'll talk to um, our guest, Elizabeth. But yes or no, cutting fingernails in front of somebody else, would you do that or not? No. Okay. Not quite the answer I was looking for. Is you might be able well, okay. to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm. I mean, it depends on what I know them. I just imagined myself in a cafe, surrounded by other people, cutting my fingernails. Yeah, maybe not in a cafe. How about a home? A home in front of a mate. Yeah, in front of my housemates. Yeah, fine. They're not going to love it though. They're not going to love it. I wouldn't love it if if someone else was cutting their fingernails. I'd be a bit like. Okay. And are toenails worse than fingernails in this scenario? Yes. Yeah. Toenails are, oh, I think, always worse in my view. That I think I would be like, maybe could, I just don't think I'd enjoy watching someone cut their toenails. Do you? Well, I don't know. I'm just completely not, I'm, I'm ambivalent towards somebody else's toenail cutting cause. And I feel strongly about my own, which is, and what? I don't know. I wouldn't sort of turn, turn away if I saw someone getting their hair cut. And if I saw someone getting their nails cut, then I'd be like, well, that's fine. It's another part of the body that needs trimming. And then sew down to the toenails. And if you need to do it, you need to do it. Okay, you're going to tell us what has happened no, to prompt this I'm question? absolutely not. But it don't, <laughs> so it, you've been cutting your fingernails and toenails in public? <laughs> well, I mean, I do, it, I do it at home and I get unkind comments um, from Liz. So, you know, I'm just putting it out there just so if she ever listens to this, then she'll feel as embarrassed as I do when someone calls me out cutting my toenails in public anyway um we should definitely move on we should i'm gonna i'm gonna let you let me introduce the show which is very nice of you i would like you to introduce our guest oh sure well uh we've got elizabeth borger who is the trek sports psychologist um she's been a competitive cyclist for over 17 years she competed on road mountain and cyclocross um she's a clinical sports psychologist i should add and she's the first sort of sports psychologist to be in a world tour team uh, and she's wicked, and she's got loads to say, and I, yeah, it's going to be a good one. Let's get into it. So yeah, so happy to have you on board, um, Elizabeth Borgia, the Trek sports psychologist. It's awesome that like you're part of the team, you're like growing the the field of sports psychology. You're a mother of two children. You're a former cyclist yourself. You know, you've done 17 years of competitive riding, which is pretty awesome. So you're more than qualified, clearly. Um, I guess kind of how did you go from doing this competitive cycling to then sports psychology? Well, I mean, I'm a clinical and sports psychologist, so I'm not just a sports psychologist. And yeah, I, um, I'm graduating in um, sciences, uh, in, in psychological sciences and techniques. And then I had a, a master's degree in clinical and, um, and community psychology, and then a specializing master in sports psychology. In my life, I think I've always tried to, to keep with me my two biggest passions that were sport from one side and psychology from the others. Uh, as you told, I've been a former cyclist. Uh, I, every time I outline, I've never been nothing special, but I, I mean, I experienced it in, in, that, in that field. And 
from the other side, I've always loved to try to, to understand the others, to understand their emotions, their internal states. And so for me, it's every time so, so nice to try to, to keep the connection with other people. So uh, in my life, I've always tried to, to keep both of them. Then when I was in the first year elite, I decided to quit because I understood that I, understood that I, I hadn't so talented to become a pro cyclist, but I wanted to keep my, my path towards psychology and maybe some, to find a way to keep the sport and psychology together in my life. And it, what I did then finally, because I started working Let's say in the clinical field, because I did 10 years in a rehab for addicted people, in which I've learned a lot. Uh, it was a work I really loved. And then I, I finally decided to quit because I had a good, uh, let's say, a good situation from the sport field. But uh, I think I, I've learned a lot also by myself. And yeah, I work a lot on myself from that side. And uh, I've studied also and I found different models like DBT. And I'm a certificated skills trainer and fewer, a few, let's say, few knowledge I'm still using also in sport life. And then after that, uh, I, start, I think that maybe the, the water shell was in 2019 when uh, I started as an external supervisor with the um, Trek Segafredo women team. Then I did the same on 2020 and 21. And then on 22, so last year, Luca Guercilena, the general manager of Trek Segafredo, asked me to become officially in the team, uh, working with both women and men team. And from this year on, also with mountain bike. So I, I'm, I'm getting <laughs> huge, let's say. Yeah, an incredible, incredible <laughs> amount of areas to work in and, and a huge amount of expertise. So you've really, you've seen the kind of human psyche from lots of different angles. And now you're looking at it through the lens of cycling. Do you think cycling is a specifically tougher, harder sport mentally than other sports? Well, I mean, cycling is an endurance sport, so uh, say pain is part of the game. I, I tell every time that is you you have somehow you have to not hate yourself, but maybe you you have to dig really really deep in yourself and to find the the energy in yourself. So for sure, like all the endurance sport, I think mental side is really really important. I have to tell you that going beyond the, the different features of every different sport and discipline, I have to tell you that the aspects that are at the bottom of the peak performances are almost the same. Then after, if you would like, we, we can talk a bit more. But uh, yeah, for sure, cycling is a really tough sport. And so uh, you have to, to be really well balanced and really motivated to, to give your 100% every day. And then sort of on that, why do you then think that the pickup of sports psychology within cycling has arguably been a bit slower compared to that with other sports? Well, I mean, uh, I don't really agree that we are a bit slower than the other sports. For example, I've been the, 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 the occasion to, to speak about uh, MotoGP team. And they told me that, for example, they um, invested so much money from the, for example, aerodynamics and other uh, more technical aspects, but still they are not working a lot on the on the pilots, for example. I think that I'm the first ever psychologist who has a proper contract in a World Tour team. 
But I can tell you that going behind, beside the, let's say, the, the formal um, features we have in the teams, we have many mental coaches and many sport psychologists uh, around the cycling worlds. And they are getting more and more year by year. I think that, for example, in Italy, we had um, a big explosion after Tokyo Olympics in which many Italian athletes spoke about psychology and uh, yeah, explained it. Uh, I've been working with also psychologists to, to reach the peak performance. So, uh, again, in general... Uh, and also in cycling, in sport, but in general in our society, I think that psychology and the attitude towards psychology is getting better and better year after year. I think that maybe the reason is that many athletes, many big champions start speaking about also mental mental health, mental issues, uh, fragilities and vulnerabilities that can be hidden also behind big characters. And I think it's been a way to legitimize also the mental needs. For sure, till a few years ago in cycling, let's say that the focus was almost towards uh, uh, physical and physiological aspects on training loads and training methods and mental side hasn't been seen as one of the, the variables that could affect uh, the performance. But now I think that's things are getting better and better. And I mean, if I look again back, I started officially in the sport uh, sport field in 2013. And I remember that the riders, the athletes, uh, avoid to tell they are working with a psychologist because there was the prejudice that if you go to the psychologist, you are a crazy person. And now I can tell you it's almost trendy. <laughs> So you've, you've worked um, extensively with Elisa uh, Longo-Borghini, who, yeah. who last year won Paris-Roubaix again for Trek Segafredo, Lizzie Dagan winning it in the first year. And you've been working with Elisa for a number of years. What have you done with her and how has she changed? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Let me try to tell you something without going too much in the details. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, with Elisa, we created a really close relationship. I think I started to work with her few few years ago. And I think that we with her, we have worked really, really deep. I mean, she was, uh, she's a kind of person that is really close if she doesn't uh, trust you, but when you create uh, and and when she understands that she can speak with a, a trusted and a reliable person, she's really open. So she she gave me the possibility really to to speak and to work uh, deep with her. I mean, again, every time the aspect on which we have to work in general are um, the same, then. I have to, to explain better, but every every human being is different for sure. But self confidence, uh, uh, goal setting, uh, uh, focus, uh, um, effort modulation, coping skills are all the aspect on which we we work every year. For sure, starting from different level and different mix of these aspects, because for sure uh, we have traits in our lives. So we have uh, aspects that are more stable in our life, but also contingencies make up changing in our way to approach to different situations. So with her, for sure, we did a great goal setting. That is the frame on which uh, we, we built up 
all the season, all the season long. So it's not just about I want to win here and there, but is way more is okay. I want to be there in my best expression. So yeah, I have to work from different side, from the technical, the physical, the mental side to be there and be ready. To deliver and again self-confidence especially if I have to generalize women many times have lower self-confidence than men is nothing that is officially let's say um, declared in surveys but in my personal experience is that many times we have so great champions they still don't have a super high self-confidence even they have won so great races. So self-confidence is being aware about your strengths. So we work about the strengths. We work about also looking at the big picture, trying to, to create and build up this self-confidence, looking at the little step we are doing day by day. And let's say also, for example, working on a, an important debrief after every every race. So what went right, what we could improve, and what we we have to to look at the, the looking, let's say at the at the at the weak points as as improvement goes. So I I did that wrong. So I next time I need to that in the proper way and how I can do this. So we have worked on many many things that I, I mean. We work from the uh, sports side, but I uh, I come from clinical, so uh, from the clinical field. And uh, in my my studies, I know that we bring our scheme also in the sport. We are people, so we can't uh, think that when we go on our bike, we are different persons. So it's like many many aspects come from also private life. That then an athlete can decide. Uh, and can define the limit, okay? But many times, if you would like to really work deep, you have also to to go outside from the sport life and going also in the private one. Because if we look, for example, I've uh, I've studied a lot, uh, uh, many many papers from uh, International Olympic Committee, and they explain that, for example, the issues and the difficulties that many athletes find are not just close to the sport life, but it's also about the private life or aspects that are let, for sure are connected and linked to the sport life, but they are not in sport life. It's like, for example, uh, we have many Australian riders. They have to leave their home for six, seven months per year. And for sure is a, a stress element being far from the family, boyfriends, girlfriends, and whoever, and friends in general, and is is an element that we have to take care about because it can affect finally the performance too. If you are sad that you don't can that you can't see uh, your parents or you can stay with your friends for so much time, and you have to to live in a town that is your not your own town, for example, seems to be stupid, but we have to to take care also from this aspect. Do you think, um, Elisabetta, that there is a greater possibility for a professional cyclist to experience mental health problems either during their career or afterwards compared to a kind of average person? Because I often think, and you, you talked about working with um, substance misuse people, people with you know suffering with addiction problems, yeah. and we see professional cyclists you know, someone like uh, Jan Ulrich is a is a good example. Obviously, he's a guy who's competed a long time ago, but had lots of problems after retiring with 
drink and drugs. Is there something in the brain of a cyclist that leaves them very vulnerable because they have to be so dedicated and so sort of almost addicted to what they're doing? It leaves them vulnerable to other things when cycling stops being their main focus. Yeah. So I can also speak about few surveys they have been done also by International Olympic Committee. Let's say that regular sport or regular participation in sports has been demonstrated to have a great number of benefits from the physical, from the psychological, from social health. But there is a big but that is uh, about the 13% of the, the global population in general uh, experience some mental disease, mental disorders. And it's even higher in the elite athletes. So the perspective studies have reported that uh, mental health uh, occur between 5 to 35% of elite athletes and is a huge amount if we look. And the most uh, present disease are anxiety, are depression, are eating disorder, are sleep-related problems, are alcohol misuse, as you told before. So um, for sure, we have to take care from this side. I mean, just on that, it's super interesting because do you think sort of with all those mental health issues, is there a difference between men and women within that? Well, again, uh, there are a few surveys, and then I will tell you more about my personal experience. But if we have to, to look at science, uh, there are many uh, studies, especially about 2020, that, we, that found, for example, a higher prevalence of uh, anxiety and depression in female athletes then compared to male athletes, we are speaking about 26% uh, against uh, about 10%. So a huge difference. Yeah. Then also, for example, if we look at eating disorders, we have again a higher percentage for women um, compared to men. And in general, uh, in 2013, has been done uh, an important survey in which uh, a study showed that finally women athletes are more susceptible to burnout than men. Wow. And um, yeah, I have my, my personal opinion if we can have a look, let's say, uh, outline and or, or a profile of women in, um, in cycling or, or in general women I'm working with. I can tell you that giving from granted the same level of professionality because nowadays we have the same, I have to tell you, we have the same materials, the same support, both for women and men. We have some differences that are, I think they come from human differences, not just sport, <laughs> sport people, people differences. And for sure, I can tell you that women could be really, really rigorous and methodic and they are less flexible. So they try to schedule more, they plan more in order to give more predictability to, they give their, to, to their life. But at the same time, they are well organized, but they are less flexible. And for sure, if we look in general, is I think are features that can help them to be professional and to, to, to deliver a, a great performance but is a bit dangerous if we go a little bit beyond the rigorous 
because they have, for example, a super hard line approach many times when they have a proper goal and they keep everything else uh, that is not really connected to the performance in the background. So when they are committed to something, they can't say anything else. And again, is a good way to be super focused from one side, but if it's too much, the risk is that they are every time hyperactivated again towards something. And then if then the ideal is different and the expectation are not found in reality, could be really frustrating. Then they have also high level goals. They are hyper focused, hyper strict. They are perfectionist. Another element uh, typical from us, from women, is that we wouldn't, would like to have everything under control. So, uh, James, you, you spoke about, for example, the alcohol misuse or some, not say addictive behavior, but they are always some unfunctional way to manage unpleasant emotions. Uh, in fact, every time, the key key aspect on which I work every time on the athletes are emotions. So many times we have super professional riders who in reality, they don't have emotional literacy. They don't know how they feel. They know why they feel it. They don't know how emotion work for them. Many times I, f- I speak with athletes, not just with the team, eh? also with others, that I don't have to feel this. And every time I tell them, if you feel it, there is a reason or many more reasons. So, or I was nervous. I don't feel fear. You have to feel, uh, let's say the first function of the emotion is to save our life. If you don't feel fear or anxiety to doing, to do dangerous things, we can die. So uh, we need to understand and to listen to our emotions, but we can manage, let's say the intensity. Because if we look, for example, to an important theory in sport psychology, that is the U-reverse theory, tells us that we need to be activated. We need to feel emotionate somehow. But our performance is super low where we are not at all activated or if we are too much activated. So we have like a U-recurve theory. That means that we have to find the middle way my middle way is different from yours. So you have to, to understand which is the best condition on which you can build up your peak performance. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling, with Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try... 
um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour, and you can find it in all the usual places. Finding the right insurance deal for your bikes normally involves spending hours of your time getting individual quotes from multiple providers. However, this week's podcast partner, QuoteZone.co.uk, makes the insurance quote process quick and easy and provides quotes from a wide range of providers, including Yellow Jersey, Lacquer, CyclePlan and Bicmo, along with many more. In fact, QuoteZone compares more providers than any other UK bicycle insurance comparison site, meaning you're more likely to find a deal that meets your needs and budget perfectly. We've partnered with QuoteZone on a price draw to win a one-year subscription to Cyclist Magazine worth over £75. All you need to do is try out QuoteZone and you'll be automatically entered into the prize draw when you get a quote. Simply go to quotezone.co.uk forward slash cyclist and try out the comparison tool to be entered into the prize draw. Please note this competition is open to our UK listeners only and the winner will be selected at random and notified before the end of May 2023. So we know, I think, from a very basic point of view um, as amateur cyclists, as lovers of the sport, that at a training camp, the teams will go and they'll do all kinds of um, training, they'll undertake a training program. And with the training program comes some kind of practical homework. So when they're not with the team, then it's go away. And if you want to improve your peak power, then you might be doing these interval sessions. What practical homework do you give to riders in the kind of the mental department so for example if i came to you elizabeth and said i just don't believe i can win what would you tell me to go away and do to change that mentality okay okay uh maybe i can tell you something before and then i i answer to your question because maybe uh, i give from granted what i do in general in a team but maybe it's not so so granted for all the people listening this podcast so i'm part fr- from last year i'm officially part of the team performance of team tracy Fredo. that means that in our team and in general in all uh, world tour teams there is uh, an internal structure and multidisciplinary equip in which we find, for example, doctors, coaches, nutritionists, and me from last year, uh, that support all the athletes during the season in order to be, um, let's say, performing and effective as possible. Okay. And so we meet each other. We have a bi-weekly meeting in which we speak about every athlete, how he feels from different side in order to keep a track of the, their trend during the season, if they are ready to race, if they are injured, if they are, they are sick or wherever. So we try to, to, to look at the, the athletes uh, really from, uh, let's say, a really scientific way. Then if I look, for example, for myself uh, in the first uh, training camp, 
I work from the individual side. So uh, I do usually in, we have, we had two big training camps, one in December, one in January, usually in, in Spain or where it's a bit uh, hotter than, than in Italy or in other places. And we start working, uh, looking, creating the goal setting for the next year. Looking back at, two, uh, for example, this year, looking back at 2022. So how the previous season went, what went right, what we, we would change for the next year and having the goal setting and having, let's say, a baseline from, uh, from the next season. Then I work also to, in general, for to create a team, to, for the three team building. That means all the groups in order to work on the values and again, the team goals. That means uh, usually we split uh, the the team in little teams. For example, Giro, Tour, and Vuelta team, or sprinters and classic riders. And we start working, for example, to meet each other, to know each other better, to learn, for analyze different topics, to again to look at different goals and wherever. And in general, during the season, I. I work with the riders. I go to the races. Most of the biggest races are, are, are be there, and uh, and then I keep the contact during the season. So I do video call, I do call messages, and again. So you ask me which homeworks. I, I every time explain to the riders that is like uh, uh, physical training. So it's not just you come one time, one shot, and it's okay. Especially because we have our schemes that are uh, fixed uh, during uh, during our life, and even if they are not hyper hyper functional, we keep on doing like this because for for sure we have a reinforced somehow to keep doing it like this. So we have to create new schemes, and especially we do this when we are less activated from emotional side. So we when we are far from the big races. We have to build up step by step when you are really far because it's easier that when we are under pressure, we keep on doing like old schemes. So it's something that we have to build up. And every time I work and I explain this, because again, uh, it's not just magic and it's not just I go one time and I'm okay. And for example, homework is like... uh, to use and to try different strategies. Again, we are, every athlete is different. Every human being is different. So, uh, if you, for example, you are too much anxious before the races and you are not able to, to sleep well the night before the race and you wake up and you are, that you are already tired just before leaving, <laughs> before starting the race. Okay. It's like, okay, we do together this kind of breathing technique then you go home and you try to use it and then you give me a feedback or for example you told me uh, about uh, uh, it, that was a, a typical sentence of a person with a low self-confidence i i can't do it i can't win so first of all is being aware about your strengths is be aware about for example the parkour, the, the, the loop of the, of the race you will do and look at the loop, uh, looking at your strengths and your weak points. So where you can attack and you make the difference and when you have to defend yourself. And in general, in this kind of aspect is, okay, we have to work on your self-talk. The self-talk is 
is defined as, let's say, as expression of an internal position in which the sender of the message is also the, the intended receiver. So in literature, we have that our self, uh, self-talk should be at least uh, affirmative and positive. And many times, if we look back at the previous races and we try to analyze the self-talk, we find many times that it is or in negative. So it's like, uh, I can do it, the others are stronger, today is not my day. Or doubting is something about the question marks. It's like, do I have to attack or I have to wait? I have to follow him or I have to wait or, or do something. So we are, in general, we are two states of mind. It is the reasonable mind and the emotional mind. We are emotion and we are thoughts in general. But emotion and thoughts affect each other and they drive our behavior. And this is really important to know because we, if we start to understand how we work, we can understand also how we can change and, yeah, and to fix few few issues. And do you ever have to go on the team radio during a race? Um, maybe if a rider's struggling, just kind of remind them of maybe some of the strategies that you've employed. Well, uh, I have a really, really nice relationship with all of the DS of the team. And I, I work with them maybe before the race. And I've been uh, in the team car in few races, uh, let's say not supporter, but like a side, uh, side stuff. And yeah, uh, many times if the riders give me uh, the possibility to speak with the DS uh, on what we are working on, because finally there is the professional secret and the, uh, what I speak about during uh, every uh, every talk uh, is not uh, is not open to the others. Uh, I can uh, explain to the DS maybe it's not a super period, but I don't go at all in deep what we are what we spoke about during uh, during the, the individual talks. But if the rider give me the possibility, okay, you can we are defined for example a keyword that that uh, he has or she has to 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 remind during difficult moment of the of the race and he or her tell me okay you can tell to the ds uh, also the ds can tell it during on the radio during during the race do you um ever see something change very quickly in a rider so when you come when you're in that situation and you pass on a kind of message and that message might be remember this positive piece of self talk that i've taught you do you then see a change in the way that person, a change in the attitude on their bike. Can it be that quick? Can we tell ourselves in a moment, shape up and get faster and ride harder and then it happens? <laughs> I mean, uh, I would like to tell you yes, but I have to be realistic. And I think that is really important that uh, we'll be given a, a proper and a right message. I mean, again, I, I don't want to fall in the trap to to say that if you come and work with me, you can change your life. I think it is not fair. And I think that, and I don't like it all when I look at my, my colleagues doing or telling or trying to send messages like this because it is not fair and it's not professional for me. I can tell you that the placebo effect is real. So many times it's just, uh, but it's not, I, I mean, it, it's not about my uh, competence or it's not about uh, something really changes because I am a big fan of, let's say, long-term changes. 
because they are the, the only proper changes. Because again, we can find some differences, some changes that if we work just on the surface will be is many times if I have to do a, let's say, um, a metaphor towards uh, addictive uh, problems is like, okay, I don't drink anymore. Now I use drug or I start be uh, a gambler. Okay. It's like uh, I, I switch the problem from one side to the others. If you would like to really, uh, we are from the sports side. So it's more to give you hundred percent and try to achieve uh, your, uh, your potential hundred percent. So we are in a different field, but it's the same. So I can give you strategies. I can give you tips, but if you don't work on yourself properly, it's like it's not fake, but it's something that is not a long-term change. Everyone would like to know, yeah, I do this and we'll ch- everything will change, but it's not realistic and I won't give this kind of message. Yeah, everybody wants the silver bullet. But just thinking, changing direction a little bit now, but still looking at cycling, but in the, the kind of aftercare and the care around a cyclist for them as a human being, do you feel like cycling supports its employees, its riders properly? And I'm thinking of people who have been incredible cyclists who've taken early retirement where they have directly said this is a result of mental health issues. So Marcel Kittel, uh, Pete Kenner, uh, Ian Boswell, and then, you know, tragic um, death of uh, Kelly Catlin, the US track cyclist who who went through a, a p- big period of depression um, after an accident and, and took her own life. So do you feel like cycling does support its athletes in the right way and if not what needs to be done well uh, i don't like to, to generalize i can tell you i can speak about my, my experience uh, what we are doing as, as a team in general we are trying to create a, a psychological safe culture we say so an athletic environment in which the athlete can feel comfortable being themselves. I know it's not super easy. I know that uh, many times uh, working on the sport, we are focused just on the performance, but we are trying to be uh, way more sensitive towards the mental health because, again, before being athletes, they are human being and they have the, the right to feel okay from not only from the physical side, but also from the mental side. And also because we are aware that if we a performing rider is an healthy rider. So health is the first step we are looking at as a team. And then we built up over this health, our best performance. And we are doing, for example, in our team, we are doing a lot, a lot on mental health literacy because... Uh, from the uh, prevention side and then an early detention. We are doing many workshops with the coaches, also with a DS, not just with the riders, to be more sensitive, to look at, at the symptoms that can bring to proper disease in order to be everyone being more sensitive and to find immediately if something is going in the wrong direction and try to do an early intervention. So uh, we are, for example, giving questionnaire uh, at the start of the season and repeat this questionnaire during the season also to have this kind 
to have the trend, to understand the changes, both in general to have an overview of the team, but also from the same person in different moments during the season. And I, I can tell you my presence in the team is a proof that we are working a lot a lot from uh, from this side and because uh, we have seen that uh, and the science tell us that the articles for athletes seeking help are for example low mental health literacy or the denial of the problem or the belief that it would not help because no one can really listen to or the stigma or the lack of problem awareness so we are really working on yeah, help the, the riders to, to tell them that they can speak about everything. Cause sometimes we have the, the double, let's say we are, we have a double presence. They say from one side, we are the people that can help them and from the others are the people that have to, to define if uh, kept them and sign the contract for next years or not. So, uh, we, we try, we really try to create a proper environment in which they really can say, okay, I don't feel good. I need this or that. And we are here to, to, to listen to them. Do you find it's quite hard to do that though? Because cycling is one of the sports where showing weakness is a bad thing. It's almost like poker. You never show somebody that you're in pain. You never show somebody that you're suffering on a bike. If anything, you try and make it look easy. But that is completely opposite to opening up and being vulnerable and saying, actually, I find this very hard. How do those two things sit together? Oh, well, I would like to have a different point of view. I totally agree with you. From one side, from the other side, the, the advice I give every time to the riders is to, to find the limit between the in and the out. I mean, uh, I think that social media, for example, are, um, let's say, making everything way more huge. In social media, everything should go perfect. My life is good. New back days. Everything is fine. Life is good, wherever, even if we know that it's not like it is. So I think that there are two different levels, the, the professional level in which really all together we work as a team to help and support the rider. So the means being a team is like, is like, okay, I can tell you that I don't feel good for this reason and we work all together in order to find a way or to, to be back on the path on, or really to find a peak performance. And then there is outside of the team that is about journalists, about uh, fans, about people that don't really know what we are doing. And so we know that now riders uh, is not just about winning, it's also about being characters to send messages that going towards the, the, the partners, the, uh, the brand they are sponsored by. So uh, I think we have to split to different level and we stay, we are performance oriented so is every time okay you have to feel good you have to feel healthy and work on the performance the rest is another level and i think that there are also other people coming from the staff they are more competent on let's say what the output we have from to the outside yeah and just on the idea of um, factors kind of outside the sport influencing riders. What about for women who are pregnant? I believe Ellen Van Dyke announced hers. Super exciting. Obviously, Lizzie Dyden. Yeah. What are your strategies that you employ? And do you continue to support these riders out, like when yeah. they're pregnant as well and on their return? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we have a really, really close, uh, close relationship with Ellen. In general, Trike is, I think, is the first brand maybe that kept them to to keep the their position in the team, uh, even if they are pregnant, and to keep on give them the salary also during their pregnancy. So um, I think that we have a a really nice view of this aspect. I can tell you that it's really connected of being professional. I mean, it's a way uh, we are women. We have to, we are done to, to have to have children. I mean, <laughs> and I think it's not fair to, you have to decide if to keep on doing what you love or let's say follow also your nature and i think that now also uh, cycling women's cycling is grown a lot also from from this side and we keep the uh, relationship with with the riders they are out for for pregnancy but cuz they will be back and then uh, it's really important to keep to keep the link with them for sure yeah and when someone is um, trying to have a baby, do they come to you beforehand and say, Elizabeth, I really want to get pregnant. How do you think I can sort of mentally prepare myself for that? Usually they speak with coaches about this kind, let's say, of programs, even if it's not a proper program, but it's like to, to also schedule the, the right moment. I mean, even if it seems to be not super nice, but uh, I think it's for every every person who, who works, it's important also the the timing of every the, 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 let's say our internal timing also to to be to be to to have the possibility to have children, but also the timing in, in the career. I mean, so they go especially to the coaches from the side, and then when when. The, the aim is, is clear. We also work also for, from this side because many times is the, the comeback is easier than expected. Sometimes it is harder than expected because, I mean, women's cycling is, uh, is evolving a lot, a lot in the last year and the level is super high. So maybe it will be harder than 10 years before to be back in the peloton and be, and having, uh, and be performing properly. And, also, so it's really important after the first month in, in which for sure uh, the, the focus is all on the baby, uh, it's really important again to, to do a proper goal setting, to, to give realistic goals and especially to have a timetable in mind. So, okay, because many times things don't go smooth as, as we would like. So is every time to, to, to change, let's say, the right timing and to, to, to find the, let's say, the, the deadline, to give your own deadlines towards, okay, I will be back on the bike in that month and then I would like to start doing the, the proper first effort in, in there but every time we have to keep updated with the coach and with me to to understand if uh, if things are, are going as expected or if we have to change something yeah especially in the second part when they are coming back from the pregnancy is really important because uh, also from the emotional side you know when when we have children also is important to, to take care also from that side because it's a big change in our life. And so is uh, maybe uh, we are a bit more vulnerable and more fragile in, in some situations. Is there actually the change in the psychology of either a male or female rider who's had a child? We often hear that with sprinters. Sprinters are never the same once they've had a kid because they can't take 
the same risks because now they're just more worried in life. They've got something much bigger than them to sort of live for. Is that true? Well, I can tell you that um, I think it's about the feeling responsible uh, about another human being. So it's like, okay, I, I can't crash because... I, I know that it's not just by myself, but is I have to take care of someone else. And I think that is really, really normal, this feeling, because I remember the first, first month when I was mom, uh, I, I saw dangers everywhere, even if, and I felt way more sensitive towards the dangers in, the, in, uh, in my house or also outside. Okay. It's like being more sensitive in general. And yeah. I've seen situations in which maybe they were a bit more careful or less, uh, less risky in general. But uh, there is a, a way to work on it, for example, is like working on, on the focus. It's something that we have to work on because our mind has the, the possibility, has the skill to process just one info at a time. That means that if you are really uh, listening to me and you are really interested in what I'm telling you, you can't think about something else. You can understand that if you start to thinking uh, at something else, it's like you turn off your attention of my to my words and you start thinking to something else. So it's like something that is on-off. Okay, so for example, uh, many times if we use, for example, cognitive ABC, that is, uh, that is a strategy, that is, a, a, let's say, a model we, we have that is uh, to understand the antecedent, the beliefs and the emotions. Many times when you feel, uh, for example, you start breaking more than the past in the downhill is because you were not really focused on them, but you are thinking about your little one. In, even if you are in the race or in training. So it's also a focus training. It's like, okay, now we have to work on this. So it's like when you are on the bike, we have to find a way to really be fully focused on what you're doing. And again, we, we start working on the self-talk. For example, to give self-instruction uh, of what you have to do in order to be effective. So, for example, the position, the position also in the peloton, how to corner, and from the technical side. So, stay to describe the facts and not to interpret it. Okay, I am I'm a mom now, and I have, or I'm a dad now. I can't do this, or I can't sprint like in the past. Because if you are in the sprint and you are doing, for example, the lead out, you have to really be focused on what you're doing. And you can't, well, I mean, you can, but it's important you are focused in the present because it's really the only moment in which you can change something. But if you have your mind that is completely in another place or another time, because many times, for example, if we look to anxiety is uh, I'm here physically, but I'm thinking to the future. Or when you feel guilty, I'm you are here in the present, but in reality, you are thinking about the past is uh, something on work you can work on step by step not just okay do this and you it will be fine so self-talk is such an interesting one and I just wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more and give us a few examples of of self-talk uh, again as I told you before uh, a negative self-talk is like uh, I can't do it I'm not ready or uh, I'm good when it's hot 
and now it's rainy and it's super cold or I'm good uh, when uh, in dry condition, I can't, I'm not able to handle my bike when it's rainy and the asphalt is, uh, is wet, for example. So if we start working on the thoughts, we can see also which are the emotions that are connected and understand which are the urges connected to the, that kind of, of emotion. It's like, okay, I'm scared when it's rainy, so I avoid to go out when it's rainy. Or uh, another um, not, uh, let's say, not effective self-talk is again about doubting, is uh, I don't know if I have to attack now or I have to follow the wheels of the others. Or is it the right timing? I will waste energy that uh, I need uh, at the end of the, of the race. So the first, the first step is every time to be aware about what we're telling yourself. Because many times is something so uh, not unconscious, but is something that is so automatic that you are not aware what you are telling. And the second aspect is okay. Uh, for example, the training, the homework I let the riders do is like, okay, you are in training, so the, the, the condition is easier than in the race. You are not so activated. Okay, so take care about what you are thinking about while you are doing precise efforts. Okay, and if there are negative uh, sentences, if there are interrogative sentences, then you go home, you write from a side your original self-talk and to turn it in a proper way. It's like, okay, so next time when you are mindful, because it's important you are mindful in that situation, otherwise you can't be aware about what you are thinking. Okay, when you are mindful and you can understand what you are telling yourself, you can translate and change immediately live the, the self-talk. So we're looking towards Paris-Roubaix now, coming up um, in a few, uh, probably about a month or so, uh, a few weeks. And I'm a rider and I don't like cobbles and I don't like bad weather. And there's a good chance I'm getting the bad weather and I'm definitely getting the cobbles. Is it as simple as turning my negative self-talk, I don't like cobbles, I don't like the rain, into I like cobbles, I like the rain? Because that seems too easy. How do I get from the negative, and they're two very big negatives, how do I turn that into a positive? I mean, uh, I think in general our life is about two extremes. Is like from one side, try to, to do a problem solving strategy. And from the other side is acceptance. I mean, they seems to be two extremes, but in reality, they are really, I've worked a lot on myself about, about being more dialectic because I know that in general, uh, I think that sport human beings are way more towards the problem solving strategy. It's like, I have a problem. I have to solve it. It's like I, I broke my collarbone. My doctor told me I have to, to stop for three weeks and I would like to stop for one week and then I'll be back as soon as possible. So it's like we are every time uh, towards uh, uh, to change the situation and not change our approach to the situation. But many times the most effective way is to accept a situation that we can't control. So the first thing is work not in the race start working way before is like okay i i have to do paris roubaix and i know that there are cobbles usually is poor weather and it is not an easy race so first of all if i decide to do this i have to accept which are the condition of that kind of race because you are not 
forced to do this. But if you decide you and with your team to do this, it's like now I have to approach myself and to copy the situation in the most effective way. Okay, so it's like, can I change the cobbles? Cobbles are, are, are under my control. I don't think so. Like the weather is the same. We can keep on fighting against things that are not under our control. It's just a waste of energy. So it's like, okay, I know that I don't like cobbles. I'm not flicking myself telling, oh, I love the cobbles. It doesn't work for sure. But if we accept that there are cobbles, we can start working on, for example, okay, I don't like them. Why I don't like them? Because maybe I don't feel confident. I don't feel effective on the cobbles. I, I have a, not the right position. Is The course is, doesn't suit me well. Okay, I can work on this. Because if I don't like cobbles because uh, I don't feel confident, I can start working few weeks or maybe months before working, for example, on my bike. It's like I come from the off-road. I know that, for example, tire pressure can make the difference or the section of the tire can make the difference. The position can make the difference. And the training of this kind can make the difference. So I don't feel confident, but I know that I, if I start working since months before and I, for example, do the recon, so I start knowing pretty well the course, uh, how long is that section? Uh, how hard is that section? Where is better to go? Is a, is a way to be ready and so to build up step by step my confidence. I know that I'm not like, uh, I don't know, Van Barle, but I, I can learn how I can improve myself looking at my, now I am a 60% of my best performance. And I would like to, to reach my 100%. That for sure is not the 100% of the people who winning who are, who are already won the Paris-Roubaix. But at least I am at my 100%. And again, I don't like wet, wet races. The same thing. It's like I can change the weather. If it's going to rain, it will rain. Even if I, I, I keep on uh, <laughs> yelling against the, the weather. So it's like, okay. The positions are two, or I, I don't race, or I try to work on myself to be effective also under the rain. Or, for example, I, I don't like cold. Okay, I try to use different kits. I understand which kind of um, materials can help me more. Uh, if I need to gloves with different materials, uh, I can use better my hands or, or wherever. So it's like, okay... I have to accept what I can change and accepting is part of the change. It's not just, okay, it's a passive way to say, okay, it is how it is and uh, I can do it. It's a different way. It's like, okay, I accept this. Acceptance is, is a choice. I define, I, I accept many, I have to accept many times one thing. And if I accept this, I, I have a condition that can help me to also step-by-step step try to to be better in something that I don't like. Elisabetta, I'm now going to go away and practice this kind of acceptance. Yeah. I'm going to start, yeah, I'm going to start preparing for riding in winter 2023 and 24 now because I didn't do very much over the last couple of months because I couldn't, yeah, didn't have that acceptance. And there is another aspect. It is if you start to work on this and you start to train on this, you know, okay, I'm not 
the best of the cobbles. But for sure, I've worked on it. I've done all my best to be ready on it. And it can make the difference. It's like when you go when you go to school to have a test and you know you haven't studied anything. It's way different, even if you didn't understand all the stuff, but you know you have studied day by day and you go there and you know, okay, I mean, I'm not the best, but for sure I've worked on it and I did my best to be here at my best. All about that preparation. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us, Elisabetta, and best of luck with the preparations going into the rest of the classic seasons. It's really building up. Um, and who knows, maybe this will be a third consecutive Paris-Roubaix for the Trek Segafredo women. I really hope so. <laughs> Let's hope it. But it would be okay also worse or, or something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It's been really interesting. A lot of food for thought. And thank you for the possibility to speak about mental side because uh, again I think that also this kind of, of stuff can help the cultural and general literacy about the, the emotional side and mental side absolutely yeah definitely well Elisabetta we'll let you go but thank you so much for coming on you're welcome take care have a nice day ciao oh wow thank you Elisabetta that was absolutely fascinating many many things to unpack there my personal favorite was probably about the self-talk i talk to myself a lot on the bike full disclosure sometimes i sing uh james <laughs> what about you no no no. let's rewind <laughs> what do you sing what, what do you sing and are you singing are you singing along to something or are you just singing words out your head I am singing a song that's stuck in my head. And well, I've got a couple of favourites. My favourite for when I'm cycling, I'm on the way back and I really want to get home. And I sort of need need the motivation, need to feel good. Maybe I'm a bit tired. You know the song, um, Take Me Home, Country Roads? I do. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> and I sing it out loud. So I'm singing it to everyone else that is around me. And it just puts me in a great mood. And I just, I, I only know about four lines and I just repeat them. No, that's, that's all you need to know. Now, I can, I, it's weird, isn't it? When you drive, like people driving in cars, standard thing, sing along to the radio, just sing. But you don't really get that many people singing on bikes. So I feel like, I mean, it's obviously, it's harder, isn't it? Because the wind kind of blows the words out of your mouth. But I feel like there should be more bike singing. There could be, imagine a Peloton, <laughs> an acapella Peloton group. There could be an acapella Peloton. There could be a team, a pro team of acapella cyclists. And they could wear the kind of barbershop candy cane striped jersey with what looks like kind of like a boater style hat and they could they, they'd really add some color to those really bought like long boring flat stages yeah i'm here for it i think let's get that started i think we'll have to might have to set an example yep. uh do a cyclist peloton choir and we'll go from there yeah no we can definitely <laughs> do this but so yeah self-talk is um self-talk is definitely way more of a thing than you think it is because it kind of sounds it almost feels like you've got this inner monologue going on which is slightly crazy of you know of one to have but it turns out that hey as you've just said you know everyone and as Elizabeth was saying everyone kind of has it but also it is really important and it can kind of apparently like there's different the types of language that you use can often are often sort of linked to the sports you're doing so in endurance sports there's lots of I can do this there's lots of what am I going to do when I finish doing this kind of things? Like when later on I'm going to, or I can do this, or I am fast enough. Whereas in something like badminton or squash, say, there's a lot of almost like negative self-talk, which is um, you're not good enough. You're going to drop this point. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And that is a motivator 
apparently for kind of more, I don't know, sort of more explosive, less kind of like long, like slow burn kind of sports. And it tends to be as well that people that are really good at a sport think less about the sport as they're doing it than people that are struggling. So again, think of like a marathon runner. There's a lot of self-talk about doing the marathon, being able to do it, um, not giving up. Whereas someone who's actually very good at running will often be able to put their brains in a kind of other place. Because I guess the inference being, if it comes easier to you, then you don't have to take, it doesn't take as much like mental energy and coaching of yourself to kind of get through it. Yeah, I can definitely see that, especially when um, you get in your head about something and it can really slow you down. Yeah. I always find if I'm on a ride and my brain is elsewhere, I'm not thinking about my speed, my power, or like the fact I haven't gone very far or like, you know, like a big climb coming up ahead or whatever it might be. I'm in a whole nother world and it just, you know, you don't notice your suffering. Like you don't notice the fact that you're doing it. You're just enjoying it. Absolutely. Yeah, distraction tech. And I think that's one of the reasons why they, um, so people have said anecdotally that um, British cycling bans the use of music in like, um, ramp tests basically like static bike tests because you're not going to be listening to music if you're racing but it artificially increases your ability to suffer because it's apparent you know the idea being it's this distraction sort of thing part distraction part also the way that you know your body responds to like high bpm music but yeah it's taking True. it's taking you out of what you're doing do you listen to music when you ride? I don't know if I should answer that, honestly. I mean, yes. Okay. No, yeah, I no. mean, okay, <laughs> this, this is maybe, hopefully no one listens to the, the end part of the show. If you really want me to get into it, I do listen to music when I ride. I'd be lying if I said I didn't always, I had one earphone in. But I maintain that it's never to the point where I can't hear other ambient noise. And I sort of, my conjecture is that no one's banning people from listening to music when they're driving their car with their windows up so the only person i'm putting at risk realistically is myself and then it kind of comes down to i don't know how much do i maybe maybe <laughs> how much do i value my own life but no I, I don't know i've never felt like i'm being ridiculous doing it but every time i've said it it is absolutely and anyone listening i do not endorse it whatsoever we should, none of us should listen to anything except the traffic and our own breathing when we're cycling but i just find it really i just love listening to good tunes and going riding it's just the best thing but i almost feel like we should delete this now because i shouldn't have said anything about it. <laughs> no i was just gonna say i um i never really listen to music when i ride but i just got a pair of bone conductor headphones oh, yeah. um and so i'm just intrigued as to how that is gonna impact my riding and like how it's gonna change because I've always been, not that I wanted to listen to the traffic, but I really like listening to my own thoughts and having that clear headspace. Yeah. But when the music's on, you know, it takes over. And also I like listening to the birds and like the trees and that kind of stuff. You're like feeling like, you know, a peaceful more rather than ugh, high BPM music, which is really hectic. Yeah, no, I, I feel you. That, and there is something, I've asked this question to ultra endurance, ultra cyclists before, you know, basically how do you kind of keep sane? Do you listen to podcasts? And it's like, and they're all just like, no. I just love it. You get into a point where you're very in tune with your surroundings and you're in this, this sort of, yeah, meditative state. And that's what you're kind of almost looking for. You're not trying, if anything, you're trying to get more into that space, that headspace, than trying to distract yourself from what you're doing. And because I guess distraction is only going to work for so long and you're still going to remember what you're doing. If you don't love what you're doing, then you're not going to be able to ride for like, 2,000 kilometers over the course of 
10 days or something like that. So, uh, yeah, swings and roundabouts. Maybe I should stop. Uh, yeah, I should stop listening. I'll, I'll, you start listening for the ne- next fortnight. You start listening and I'll stop and I'll tell you. We can discuss our findings. Yeah, I want to know how much it yeah, impacts. I'm intrigued. I'm nervous, but I'm intrigued. Well, the thing is, it's not going to be a fair test because you've had your bike fit. And if you change your headphones too, you won't know which of the variables has affected you. <laughs> so right, so I have to go back yeah. and start again. <laughs> yeah, old bike fit. Just get back, undo, undo the hard work. Get back to overreaching. <laughs> yeah, all about the overreaching. Right. Well, Emma, it's been an absolute pleasure, um, and I look forward to many more of these podcasts in our wonderful new dawn, which is. I'm not really sure what it is, but it's basically a whole, you know, upcoming year and more of more and more podcasts with more and more great guests. Um, so the other thing we're supposed to add, and I should add, I'm not I sound like I'm under duress, is that we're also we're also a magazine. I know that you think that we just exist as voices, but Cyclist is a magazine. You may subscribe to Cyclist the magazine, and also you may find us online at cyclist.co.uk because we do loads of stuff. We do all this pointless toenail fraffy chat, but at the same time, we also <laughs> review amazing bikes how we tell great stories, and people such as um, um, Orla Chenwi, who we had the other day. You'll also be able to find an article which we put together with her um, with some great photos coming out this month too. So go to WH Smiths or wherever. I don't think WH Smiths exists. Probably it's probably gone bust. Go to wherever you can buy magazines or just buy it online. Go find your best newsstands. And WH Smith does exist, can confirm. Can confirm. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> right, Emma, until next time. Until next time. Until next time.